FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today again is Dr. Lise Alshler, who's a professor of clinical medicine at the University of Arizona, where she's the assistant director of the Fellowship in Integrative Medicine at the Andrew Wheel Center for Integrative Medicine. Dr. Alshler is also the founding executive director of TAP Integrative, a non-profit web-based educational resource for integrative practitioners. She practices naturopathic oncology out of naturopathic specialists in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Dr. Alshler co-hosts a radio show, Five to Thrive Live, and is also co-founder of the I Thrive Plan, a lifestyle app for cancer survivors. Lise is co-author of the seminal work, A Definitive Guide to Cancer, now in its third edition, and The Definitive Guide to Thriving After Cancer for Patients. And I warmly welcome you back to FX Medicine, Lise. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you so much. (laughs) Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us again. I miss you. I know. We haven't seen each other in too long. I agree. Now, we've got some important things to discuss today with regards to conventional medicine updates in breast cancer. Um, now, you know, I was just reading the other day for a totally different reason than our, from our podcast, and it was basically like we had some major advances in breast cancer survival, and then it seems to have stalled. So what are the updated breast cancer screening guidelines? Well, you know, there's been, yeah, quite a bit of um, activity in this regard. I think over this last year, a lot of the associations and societies have been putting out new recommendations or sort of reviewing the data and making sure that the recommendations that they're putting out are current and so forth. So uh, there's still a little bit of difference, I would say, between one guideline group and the next. Mm. Um, but generally speaking, um, the so women at average risk uh, are still recommended to get annual mammograms. Uh, and really the preference now is very clearly to get digit 3D uh, mammograms because they present such more, you know, much clearer images. So starting at the age of 40, uh, annual mammogram is still recommended for women with average risk. If a uh, woman is at increased risk, and one of the newer um, findings, if you will, consensus-based findings of increased risk is women with increased breast density. So breast density is now very clearly linked with increased risk of breast cancer. So a woman who's 40 who has high breast density is recommended to not only get 3D annual mammogram, but also uh, to be considered for additional supplemental imaging, usually ultrasound, on top of that mammogram. 
And then that would be, of course, uh, true for women with other reasons uh, that, you know, have higher risk for other reasons. But for women, say, who have um, something that would really elevate her risk. So she's had radiation to the chest wall at an early age. She has... um, BRCA1 or BRCA2 positivity, or really a strong family history, anything that puts her lifetime risk over 20%, she's recommended to get not only annual mammogram, but also a breast MRI, and typically that's started at age 30 or 35, sometimes even as young as age 25 if she has, you know, BRCA-positive mutational status. So, you know, I think that really the the bottom line these days is that, and these recommendations that I just went through come from the American Society of Breast Surgeons, and um, but they're pretty consistent with a lot of the other bodies. And I think that what we're seeing is is kind of a come uh, coming back to more regular screening, if you will. There was a little bit of a deviation for that a few years ago, but it's all coming back to you know again annual mammogram after the age of forty. Yeah. You mentioned radiation to the chest wall at an early age. What sort of radiation are we talking here? Like multiple X-rays? Oh no, I'm sorry. Radiation treatment. Yeah, I should have clarified. So just getting chest X-rays for diagnostic reasons that wouldn't yeah. put you at high high yeah. risk. But let's say you had lymphoma, you know, Hodgkin's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at an early age, or Hodgkin's lymphoma, you would want to you would probably have received mediastinal radiation. So then you would be in this higher risk group. Therapeutic radiation is what I'm talking about, or thyroid cancer history, or something like that. Right. Although there is this um, an increased concern amongst clinicians, mainly doctors, with regards to the amount of scans that are being done. Not necessarily relevant for breast cancer, but can we just cover that as an aside? Well, you know, the whole concern with this is, you know, we do these scans, and does it really make a difference in terms of overall survival? Because you know, if we the the number of women that would be diagnosed from a scan um, compared to the number of women that will get false positives, you know, it's a fairly fine line. So I think that there's a, you can still, despite all of these societies coming back to recommending these regular screenings, you could still make a case for um, the fact that you know the ch- chances of of getting screen detected breast cancer. It's fairly low, and you're going to send a lot of women in for unnecessary biopsies. Um, the challenge is that even if it's a fairly low number that's going to be caught, if you're one of those women, you definitely want to be caught when you have an early-stage breast cancer, mm. when the mm. treatment is potentially curative. So I think that's the kind of sticky wicket with this that you know societies are really not willing to, to give up the potential, even if it's two or three women out of 100 or whatever the case might be. They want to make sure they catch those women and provide them with, you know, curative intent treatment when they can do that. Can I branch off onto the controversial subject of MRIs? And and also, can I include something that you said there with regards to biopsy, fine needle versus core biopsy? Mm-hmm. So fine needle biopsy is good to just, all that tells you is this woman or really man, or whatever, has breast cancer. So we know that, that there's breast cancer here, and we know that it's invasive or DCIS, but they don't get enough tissue to do really any molecular analysis on it. So it doesn't help you get information like estrogen receptor positivity, progesterone receptor positivity, HER2 positive or negative. 
KI-167, which is a, a marker for proliferation rate, lymphovascular invasion, these are things that are really important to get up front because it those in turn help to determine subsequent treatment recommendations. So, you know, a, a scent, uh, just a fine needle biopsy might be done just to make a diagnosis, but even but in most cases, I should say, women will probably re- be referred right away to the core biopsies so they can get all that additional information. Yeah, I've always wondered about that. So if this happens, most you know, in most, let's concentrate on women because we're talking about breast cancer and it mostly occurs in women. I, I understand there's a mm-hmm. very important um, condition in men. With regards to the number of women that have a fine needle biopsy and then are uh, and then progress to having a core biopsy. Is there any point to doing a fine needle biopsy anyway? I mean, not really, unless the unless there's a you know very uh, let's say there's it's really equivocal. We don't really we really don't know whether based on imaging whether this is cancer or not. And the woman is small breasted, and a core biopsy would take out a fairly sizable piece of tissue. Then maybe in that case, doing the fine needle is appropriate just to determine is this cancer and do we need to go further with it. Gotcha. But I think more and more you're, you know, those it's, it's rarer and rarer that I see fine needle biopsy reports in patients. Gotcha. So there is a movement to going, you know, like, hang it, let's just go to the one that gives us the information because we have a rough idea what we're dealing with. Yeah. And I think that's particularly true because one of, you know, the breast, the management of breast cancers is always changing. And one of the, ways in which it's changing now is that there's a very significant movement to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So this would be basically before um, surgery, women will get chemotherapy. Sometimes in a postmenopausal woman, instead of chemotherapy, it might be endocrine therapy for a period of time, like a year or so, in order to minimize the extent of surgery that's needed. And so in order to do that, you really need to understand what you're dealing with and whether chemotherapy is justified at that point before you've done surgical resection. And, right. you know, as I said, this is really a, a new frontier, if you will, of breast cancer treatment. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's still, there's a lot of clinical studies that are not complete yet in terms of how this will change overall outcomes and whether it's advantageous or not. But, you know, really the, the kind of move, the movement started in part because this was this is an effort to try to minimize the extent of surgery that a woman will need. And what about breast cancer in men? What is the sort of, you know, relevant detection? You know, breast, men aren't sent for mammograms regularly at any age. So what message do we have to get out to men to be able to reduce risk of breast cancer in in males? You know, I'm not an expert in this, actually, but um, what I will say is that the men that are on the tightest surveillance are really, excuse me, the men who have a history of being BRCA positive. So if they are BRCA positive, then they are going to be in pretty active surveillance. And um, I believe that they are used for, I mean, that, that what's used is um, still mammography, depending on the the shape of their chest. Um, they also get a lot of ultrasound as a way to do screening. And as far as you know, the frequency and so forth, I'm, I'm not, that's 
a little bit beyond my expertise. Yeah, but but just going on that screening, um, would that be largely based on a family history of BRCA positive? Yeah, yeah, for the most part, yeah. Like if a man tests positive, if he's BRCA positive, then he's typically put into this. So if he has a strong family history, he should get tested. And then if he's BRCA positive, he would be put into screening. Um, What about vaginal estrogen for breast cancer survivors? Yeah, so this is kind of interesting too because um, it's becoming more and more accepted even in kind of conventional circles, if you will. Um, It appears that the risk of elevating estrogen levels high enough from vaginal estrogen is very, very low. There's very little elevation of of systemic estrogen from vaginal estradiol or, or estriol treatment. And it's a very effective treatment for some women with vaginal dryness, painful intercourse. So it can be really helpful from a symptomatic standpoint. So it's becoming, you know, again, more accepted among conventional oncologists, which is great because it's really giving some options. Now, there's some other options as well. There's um, some uh, drugs that have been, I guess, drugs, topical medications that have been developed that use DHEA instead of estrogen, and that can be very effective for these same issues. And again, very low risk of raising serum estrogen levels. Um, there are also um, uh, some in- there's some interesting work, a couple studies looking at testosterone and topical application of testosterone in women taking aromatase inhibitors, and there's a suggestive synergistic effect in terms of lowering the risk of recurrence, which is interesting, plus the testosterone vaginally is also very effective for some of these same vaginal symptoms. Um, right. But, you know, some of the latest research has really found there's no difference in women who are getting vaginal estrogen in terms of recurrence rate compared to women who are not. So that's good news for most of these women. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that this is to allay any fear with regards to estrogen-positive cancers, correct? Right. Yes. Correct. Yes. So I didn't make that clear, but absolutely. Now, and I want to be very clear, we're talking about vaginal estrogen oral um, hormone replacement therapy in women, even with early stage breast cancer, um, and taking tamoxifen. So tamoxifen is something that blocks estrogen receptors. But in even in those women, there's a they increase their risk of breast cancer by like 300 percent when they're taking oral estrogen. So that's still a no no. Um, and we don't you know studies aren't long enough to say, well, does that impact overall survival? But we do know for sure that oral estrogen therapy in women with estrogen receptor positive, regardless of whether they're on an anti-estrogen type therapy or not, is not recommended. And that's true, you know, for natural estrogens, these so-called bioidentical estrogens, as well as conventional estrogens. But vaginal estrogen, totally different situation. Okay. Now, I need to ask to clear up a a little bit of a nuance here, and that is what about phytoestrogens? So, yeah, it's a good question. So phytoestrogens are, you know, they're not one size of it all with phytoestrogens. So I think of phytoestrogens as a continuum. So there are some phytoestrogens, like soy, which binds to the estrogen receptors preferentially to the beta subtype, which is actually an anti-proliferative receptor. 
And in fact, soy along with, you know, even with that estrogen binding effect, probably more of an anti-proliferation effect, along with all the flavonoids in soy, ends up having an anti-cancer effect. And its use or its consumption is associated with reduced risk of breast cancer recurrence. However, there are other phytoestrogens that are really much more stimulatory to the estrogen receptor alpha. These would be things like medicago um, or uh, red clover is another one, angelica. These are ones that I would not use in somebody with a history of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer because they do elevate serum estrogen levels. And any elevation of serum estrogen levels in somebody with a history of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer is really considered inappropriate. <laughs> That's a, it's a really important point to make that medically phytoestrogens are lumped together and yet we're eating them. You really need to know about what type of phytoestrogen or flavonoid or flavanol that you're taking. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So am I right in... Did I see a paper that was talking about a potential for estrogen for triple negative breast cancer, that it, that it actually might be a therapeutic thing? Um, I am not sure what paper you're referring to, but I know that there there are, I've read some papers recently that have looked at the rate or the rather common um change of tumors over time so that tumors that start as maybe triple negative can actually later on if it's a you know active metastatic disease or even a recurrent disease can recur with a different receptor status also tumors can de-differentiate so they can start out as estrogen receptor positive and then become negative so there's a lot of i think more change in these tumors than we would expect mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, I don't know if that is related or not to what you've read in terms of... Certainly be a caution. (laughs) Yeah, a caution because, you know, I I mean, I think the reason I brought that up is that even though somebody is estrogen receptor negative, they might still have some estrogen receptors that are being expressed. And I think that what we know about breast cancers and, you know, cells in general, but if breast cancer cells are in an estrogen-rich environment, they're going to upregulate receptors to whatever's available. And so I think the risk of, you know, doing something like that, using estrogen in a triple negative breast cancer is that you might encourage that change in morphology and then actually be feeding the proliferation of the tumor. So I think until we're really clear on what that, you know, what happens clinically, I would just say we're playing with fire. Mm. Um, Updates on uh, ductal carcinoma institute, DCIS. Um, now, you know, yeah. when is treatment needed? When is it not? When does it watch and wait? Right. So, you know, DCIS is quite a conundrum for um, practitioners. And um, so there's been some some recent data that's been published looking at, you know, this whole issue. So first of all, about one-fifth, one out of every five, mem- you know, mammography screened, detected breast cancers are DCIS. So about one in five women are dealing with the diagnosis of DCIS when they're diagnosed. And so there's been some look at, well, what happens if you don't treat DCIS? And there's been a big retrospective study that looked at that. And by the way, now we classify DCIS more specifically. So we look at the pattern of DCIS and we can determine if it's low grade or intermediate or high grade. 
And really only when it's intermediate or high-grade DCIS do you see a separation of the lines in terms of um, risk of uh, breast cancer-specific survival. So low-grade DCIS, there's really no advantage to being to receiving treatment, which is kind of interesting. That's new. So all DCIS is no longer treated equally. And that it's, you know, by the, at least this retrospective, retrospective data, it, it appears that a low-grade DCIS is very safe to just do what's called active surveillance. And when women who have DCIS, low-grade DCIS, are on active surveillance, what that means is they need annual mammograms. And, um, and as long as they get that, they're, they're fine. Now, if a woman has intermediate or high-grade DCIS, then there is a little bit, not dramatically, it's, you know, probably at best, like, um, I don't have the exact, exact statistics, but it's certainly less than 10% difference in disease, breast cancer-specific survival with right. treatment. Right. But, you know, there's a difference. So that's something that women would potentially want to do. And then the question becomes, well, what treatment should they get? And uh, is there are there any other characteristics that we can look at that will help us figure out of those intermediate and high-risk DCIS who really is going to go on to develop invasive breast cancer and who isn't? And so those are trials that are still ongoing. But in the meantime, uh, just in terms of some really interesting resources, there's um, <clears throat> there's a new, very well-validated uh, test that's available, and it's called the Prelude uh, Test, Prelude Diagnostic Test, and it actually predicts an individual's, individual patient's benefit from radiation therapy. So DCIS is typically treated with surgery. And then the question is, does this woman additionally need radiation therapy and endocrine therapy? So radiation is kind of the variable that's most often either yes or no. So this new uh, prelude diagnostic test very carefully and very clearly reclassifies women Mm. into women who would benefit from radiation or not. And so this is great because it's actually, when when it's being used, it's saving a lot of women from getting radiation therapy who would have otherwise been recommended Mm. to get radiation just based on the initial grade of a tumor. Um, So that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, I've got to uh, ask the question about fear, though. I mean, if a woman was told that she had a diagnosis of DCIS, I can't imagine many women going, yeah, we'll just watch them wait. How does a clinician broach that? Yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised, actually. A lot of women don't want treatment. They do want to watch and wait. And they feel like they can, um, you know, it's an opportunity that they have to to reverse things. Um, And and really the, you know, but but, but to be fair, you know, there's some women who will be like, I don't even, you know, I don't want to watch and wait. Let's just take care of it, which is fine. Um, I think what the data is saying is, if that woman has low-grade DCIS, whether she treats it or not, it's not really going to impact her overall survival or her risk of dying from breast cancer one way or another. Mm. So she can get a treatment for, you know, kind of peace of mind, but uh, she could also, if she doesn't want to, that's a very evidence-based decision, if you will. Um, but to your point, yes, I think that there are some women who are just going to be like, I don't even want to 
deal with this. I just want to get it taken care of. Mm. And they will still, of course, be treated. What I was thinking of is that ongoing hypervigilance and the stress that that, mm-hmm. that places on the body. And I'm thinking biochemically. Yeah. I'm thinking about catecholamines being a driver of metastases. Right. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, these are good questions. And unfortunately, we don't really have, a, I don't have a data-driven answer for that. Um, and, you know, I think that the main benefit or the main role that practitioners really can play for these women is to share the data with them to mm. really kind of give them as much information in a digestible way as possible so that whatever decision a woman makes, she's making a decision that's based on really having a good sense of the available information at the time. So she doesn't look back later and say, gosh, if I'd only known oh, yeah. that I didn't need treatment or that I did, you know, so because I think that's a part of the decision. Do I want to expose my breasts to this degree of, you know, radiation through screening on this regular of the basis. Do I want to know that I have this DCIS in my breast and I'm choosing not to treat it? I mean, those are things that she needs to put into the decision-making whatever process that she has. Yeah. Um, let's move on to lymphedema. This is a big one for me because I've just, I've seen, mm-hmm. you know, various attempts at reducing lymphedema. And then I've also met patients who have been given absolutely no advice on lymphedema post-breast surgery. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. And, you know, by the way, I um, I had the, a wonderful opportunity to go to attend the American Breast Surgeon Society's annual conference this year. And the I can't tell you how impressive it was to me how many presentations were focused on lymphedema. So these are breast surgeons right. who are causing a lot of the lymphedema. Yeah, yeah. And they are really invested in trying not to do that. And there was a lot of, I mean, a high level of recognition of the challenges that lymphedema presents to quality of life. And in fact, one of the keynote speakers was Kathy Bates, who's a famous actress. You might recognize her name. And ah, yes. She yes. shared her yeah, Kathy, yeah, and she shared her story. She has uh, pretty significant lymphedema, and she's uh, the spokesperson for a lymphedema society. It's uh, called lymphaticnetwork.org, wonderful organization, and she's doing a lot of uh, public policy work and you know appealing to legislators because in the United States, lymphedema is not recognized as a disease state, so it doesn't get it doesn't get covered by insurance. Oh. So the treatments don't get covered by insurance in the same way. So not only are there a lot of women who have lymphedema from their treatment, but when they get it, there's really very little options for them right. in terms of what's covered. So it's a very challenging situation. But that being said, there you know there are some advances, if you will. Uh, so from a just First, before we get into some of the surgical advances, it's important to keep in mind that when we have patients, we need to be thinking about prevention, which um, one of the biggest risk factors for lymphedema is obesity. So obese women are at a much higher risk for developing lymphedema. And so we, you know, anything that we can do to help women manage their weight, especially going to surgery and you know, post-surgery is 
very important. Um, we also know that women who are sedentary have a higher risk of lymphedema. So, you know, anything we can do to encourage people, women to get active is also very important. And uh, then in terms of prevention, too, there's a great role for physical therapy. Mm. And there are physical therapists that have special training in lymphedema work. And they're really the ones that you want to try to find and get into your referral network because these physical therapists have learned very specific techniques. They're very good at instructing patients on how to do some elements of self massage and they can counsel the patient about, you know, when they can start exercising, when they can, how much weight can they lift at what point after surgery. I mean, all that's really important. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times that is not set up for women when they go into surgery. So the ideal time to start having that conversation with somebody is when they know they're going to get breast surgery and they're going to have some lymph nodes removed or they might have lymph node removed, they should have uh, an appointment set up with a lymphedema physical therapist or specialist post-surgery so they can get on that pretty quickly. There was also, um, was a physical therapy combined with, um, I'm going to say strapping, but compression bandaging? Yeah, so compression bandaging is... um, is really more of a treatment that the preventive benefit of compression um, stockings or or sleeves is still debatable. Mm. And people, but women who have had severe lymphedema develop in their arms generally report that when they engage in something that they know would trigger the lymphedema, which can be flying is the most obvious one, but even high stress can cause it to happen. Anything that increases the oxidative stress in the body will increase the chances of a you know, lymphedema to develop. So those women usually report that they benefit from some kind of compression sleeve, and women can be fitted for those sleeves post-surgery. But from a data perspective, the prevention value is a little bit you know, equivocal. Yeah. That being said, treatment-wise, it's really critical that women, you know, lymphedema, when it accumulates, they have to get some external compression, but that needs to be done very carefully depending on how severe the lymphedema is. You know, they might need to get actually bandaged for a while first and then eventually progress to compression sleeve as the lymphedema resolves. For really severe lymphedema, there's special pneumatic compression devices that they need. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, there's kind of a order and a, and a intelligence to how that compression is done. Would, would that be combined with um, diuretics at all? Sometimes diuretics are used and they can be helpful, yeah. Um, and that, you know, depends a little bit on, you know, the blood work in the mm. woman and the weight of the woman and so forth. But yes, that yeah. can definitely be used. Um, now, from a surgical perspective, there's some really interesting techniques that are just starting to make their way into um, kind of more breast surgeon facilities. Not all breast surgeons have the training, specialized training or equipment to do this. But one of the things that I'm really excited about is something called axillary reverse mapping, or it's called ARM for short. So in women who get So usually women who go in for their first surgery will have sentinel lymph node axillary dissection. So that that occurs by the breast surgeon injecting. Usually it's a blue dye or sometimes a radioactive tracer, but um, injected into the breast and then 
they they uh, open up the axilla enough to see which nodes are blue. So they're collecting the dye. Yeah. And those are kind of the first nodes that collect from that tumor, and those are the only nodes that are removed. If the those nodes are negative, the surgeon doesn't take any more axillary nodes, and everything's said and done. Um, on the other hand, if those nodes are positive, then typically, and this again is changing, but still, some women will then have more nodes removed, uh, depending, you know, on, on how, what kind of positivity there are in the nodes will determine to some extent how many more nodes are removed. But one of the things that um, some surgery centers are now doing is that in addition to injecting that dye in the breast, they inject a different dye into the upper arm. And they then when they open up the axle, they can see which nodes are draining the arm. And it's uncommon for a node to drain both the breast and the arm. So they can visually see which nodes they don't need to take out, even right. if they have to do more than sensual node dissection. So gotcha. it's great because it helps to preserve the lymph flow from the hand, which is where lymphedema yeah. happens. And then there's some other techniques they can use to kind of reconnect channels if they do happen to have a node that they need to remove. But that's something that I think we're going to start to see more widely implemented because yeah. it really has a potential to make such a difference. Oh, um, absolutely. Well, okay, so on that line, breast surgery advances. What's happening in the world of breast surgery? Gosh, there's so much. It was really exciting. I just, you know, uh, am very pleased with what's happening with breast surgery. So, you know, surgeons are really trying to put themselves out of a job, basically. <laughs> uh, no, that's not entirely <laughs> true. But they are really doing whatever they can to make surgery as um, minimally invasive as possible. So, for example, mastectomy. You know, there's a, a presentation at this uh, breast surgeons conference where this gentleman who's been a breast surgeon for, I think, 50 years or something showed slides of, of, the, of what mastectomies used to be, and it was just horrific. Like, women would literally have their chest removed, you know, down to the bone. And they would emerge with this skeletal kind of cavitation as a result. And that's how mastectomies were done not too long ago. Um, And where it's come now is uh, the new emerging standard of care is what's called oncoplastic surgery. So even if a woman needs a mastectomy, so the removal of the entire breast tissue, they are developing ways to do this with one small lumpectomy-sized incision, and they can still pull out the entire breast tissue through that small incision and uh, then reinsert the implant at the same time. And so the woman comes out of surgery with basically a breast that looks the same, more or less, and with one small incision. And that is just tremendous. Incredible. And that's you no, know, not all tumors qualify for that, but there are yep. some uh, all the way up to a you know certain size. Then there's robotic surgery, which is really interesting. This is definitely not widely available yet, but uh, with robotic surgery, the through that small incision, the robotic 
kind of arm, if you will, goes in, and the surgeon is operating this robotic arm. What this allows is the surgeon can actually see with magnification the inside of the breast tissue. So this robotic arm comes with little snippers, and so the surgeon can kind of snip away very precisely around a tumor. So for, say, a lumpectomy, can get just the amount needed, um, you know, based on the dye spread and so forth, without having to get anything that any healthy tissue. So a very precise way to do surgery and they can actually see what they can't otherwise see with their naked eyes. So, you know, these things are kind of exciting because it's just giving women options to have surgery in a less disfiguring way. Obviously, as you said before, there's limitations regarding, you know, the size of the tumor, where the tumor is, whether there's pote orange, whether there's areolar involvement, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yes, right. Yep. Yeah. So, and and just the availability of it too is still limited. So, depending on where a woman is, you know, has to get her care, the center may or may not offer some of these techniques. But it's good to be aware of as practitioners because if we have, if women has options, and these are some of the questions that she can ask and look around to find, especially the oncoplastic surgery if she's looking at a mastectomy. What about intraoperative um, cataract? Yeah. As you say, Keterolac. We say Keterolac okay. over here. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is really interesting, too, because I'd heard about this uh, a while ago, and then uh, this last year there was a study that came out. So Keterolac is an anti-inflammatory, basically, and it's given intravenously. And we know that inflammation is really the driver for tumorogenesis because it you know creates that inflammatory tumor microenvironment, which unleashes the proliferative potential of cells, creates that invasiveness, all the things we don't want to have happen. So there's always been a concern that when a woman is undergoing surgery, it's a very inflammatory event, not necessarily at the time of surgery, but in the healing process. And could that then encourage later metastasis if there are you know, some breast cells that were left behind because now they're in this very inflammatory environment? So the idea has come about, well, can what happens if we give a very strong anti-inflammatory just prior to surgery? Would that impact this risk of distant recurrences? And yep. the most recent study on this actually found that there was a 45% reduction in the risk of distant recurrences when one dose of IV Keterolac was given just prior to surgery. And this was most evident in women who had a, who were obese. Um, or overweight. So B- women who had a BMI of over 25, <clears throat> which makes sense because obese women have more inflammatory cytokines, so they're more likely to be affected by this, uh, especially with leptin, um, are, you know, really should definitely ask their surgeon about this. Um, Keterolac is basically just a COX-1 and COX-2 inhibitor, and uh, there's been some other research that's shown that uh, Keterolac specifically inhibits some of the cytokines that are directly involved in cell motility and adhesion and invasion, so really kind of designed to prevent this kind of inflammatory-induced invasiveness. Um, and all of those those cytokines, by the way, are also specifically upregulated by leptin, which is why the obese women yep. are at higher risk yep. for this effect. There's there's studies that are looking at this and have so far shown similar benefits for ovarian cancer. So women getting ovarian uh, tumor removals also 
have a lower risk of recurrence with uh, pre-surgical Keterolac and lung cancer too. There's some good data there. So I hope we start to see this kind of filter into being standard of care. But I now encourage, if I have the good fortune to see somebody before surgery, I encourage them to talk to their surgeon about their willingness to do a dose of IV Keterolac. There's no, doesn't appear to be any adverse effects of the Keterolac on the surgery or the surgical outcome or complications. Okay. What about long-term anti-inflammatories post-surgery to reduce the risk of recurrence? Yeah, and it does, you know, beg the question, right? So we don't have any good clinical data on it, but I certainly think that that should be a mainstay of our integrative approach. Yeah. Um, and for the post-surgical period, you know, I'm all about high doses of bromelain, for example, very specifically to try to minimize this inflammatory cytokine milieu. I even sometimes go so far if there's no bleeding risk to recommend non-steroidal anti-inflammatories over the counter. Uh, NSAIDs, or you know, some of going back to some of our integrative therapies, um, essential fatty acids. I think have a really important role in reducing post-operative inflammation. I think probiotics have a role in this, and I think these are all really doable, important therapies post-operatively. Now we mentioned, you know, estrogen-positive receptor breast cancers before. What about triple negative breast cancer? Is there any major advances in treatment of triple neg? So triple negative, uh, major advances. Well, um, there are some newer trials that um, are some of are some of them are still going on, but there's some new combinations of chemotherapy drugs. I think one of the more exciting areas is immunotherapy for triple negative cancer combined with chemotherapy. And there's some uh, good um, initial trials that are showing some pretty good responses for those women. Um, And, you know, because of course these women are, uh, it's unfortunate in some ways because they don't have that hormonal-based target. Mm. So they really, the only thing they have going for them or the only thing they have available to them, I should say, is typically is chemotherapy. But um, with the addition of immunotherapy, it it appears that there's more uh, more durable response to chemotherapy and um, a greater response rate. So in other words, more women appear to respond to the chemotherapy. I think that's kind of a big direction that um, triple negative treatment is is heading. Now, you were mentioning the BRCA previously. What's going through my head is this, you know, genetic testing that's freely available to the consumers. And this is fraught with difficulty because of excess um, ex- accessibility without appropriate counselling. So what's your thoughts on consumer t- genetic testing and can it accurately identify and indeed should it be used to test for BRCA, for the BRCA genes? Yeah. You know, it's super tempting, right, to use these consumer genetic tests to just avoid the whole issue of having to get the insurance to cover the BRCA testing and all that. The problem is that there was actually a study that looked at the accuracy of those consumer-based uh, tests and uh there were, was an extremely high false positive rate. So oh. there was a, actually a 40% false positive rate. And Gosh. so the only thing these tests were accurate, 100% accurate for were what's called the founder mutations in, in the BRCA gene. But the 
uh, evolution of bracket testing has you know evolved many times. So even if you were bracket tested six years ago, you probably need to get retested because the test is now testing for different mutations. So the testing has gotten a lot more sophisticated, but these consumer-based testing have not kept up. And um, so, so they're very inaccurate in terms of, of false positives. And, um, and it's because of the way that they test. So the consumer-based testing is basically using single nucleotide polymorphism arrays, and they're not doing full genetic sequencing. So they're not able to really pick up all of the potential variants. So I think it's like almost it's basically two thirds of the BRCA mutation variants that are associated with increased risk are not picked up as well from these genetic uh, consumer-based testing. So it's really not a good way to screen for these BRCA mutations. And mm -hmm. um, what about tailoring results with regards to chemotherapy as well? You're talking about these new advances which can reduce the severity, if you like, or the extent of surgery. What about um, being sparing with chemotherapy? Are there certain women yeah. that yeah that can be spared or, or have less dose? Yeah. So the big, big news uh, that everybody has been waiting for who you know treats a lot of breast cancer is the results of the Taylor RX study. So people are probably familiar with the Oncotype DX test, which is a test that looks at the gene expression pattern of a certain number of identified genes in breast tumor tissue, and that expression pattern classifies women into low, intermediate, or high-risk groups. And up until the Taylor RX, we didn't know what to do with the intermediate group. We knew that the low women, the women in the low-risk group, did not need chemo, didn't offer them any survival advantage, and we knew that the women in the high-risk group did have a significant survival advantage from chemo, but we didn't really know what to do with the intermediate group, so we just gave them chemo too. So with the Taylor RX, we now know what to do. So basically, it's taken um, the score that inter within that intermediate score, which is the score between 11 and 25, and we can now essentially say that um, a score from under 25 endocrine therapy only score over 26, equal or over 26, you need chemotherapy, except if you're young. So if a woman is under the age of 50 and her score is between 21 and 25, so it's a fairly narrow, much narrower range, mm -hmm. she would get, with the addition of chemo, about a 6.5% additional reduction in her risk of uh, recurrence. Right. If she's below that, 16 to 20, so still in that old intermediate category, there's really there's a little bit of risk reduction, but it's only 1.6%, so not very much. So gotcha. it's just this been really helpful. It's taken a lot of women again and reclassified them to a category where they really don't benefit from chemotherapy. Right. Now, you were mentioning breast density before as a risk for breast um, for future breast cancer. Um, can we do anything about dense breasts? Yes, we can. <laughs> so, uh, so breast high breast density um, is more common in women who have a history of hormone replacement therapy. So that's one area that we can modify. Uh, women who eat a Western diet are at higher risk for increased breast density. Women who drink more than seven servings of alcohol a week higher risk of breast density, and there are genetic factors, but the modifiable risk factors are basically what we talk about all day long to our patients, eating a healthy diet, moderate intake of alcohol, 
and potentially avoiding hormone replacement therapy. And if a woman is really high risk of, I mean, she has really high breast density, um, she actually could be a candidate for tamoxifen therapy. Um, tamoxifen therapy reduces breast density by about 10%, but right. that translates to about a 63% reduced risk of occurrence. So, you know, there's some potential there. But generally speaking, Mediterranean diet, decreased alcohol is kind of the mainstays. Gotcha. Okay, J- just a point on that tamoxifen. So, you know, tamoxifen's got basically, a, a you know, a time of, let's say, confidence, and, and outside that time, there's a veil drawn over it because it's a selective estrogen receptor modifier in whereby it blocks estrogen at the breast tissue but doesn't block estrogen receptors in the uterus and can lead to subsequent issues with the uterine lighting. So with regards to that preventative tamoxifen therapy, if you like, is there a, a caveat there with to how long they can take it for? Well, I think they would take it really only as long as they needed to get the breast density reduced. Right, I see. And that would not be my first therapy, by the way. I just mentioned that because that's kind of a that's what conventional oncologists that's the tool that they would have. Yeah. You know, I think from an integrative perspective, we would go to the diet first, but that is potentially out there. Speaking of tamoxifen, I just want to throw out one thing which I'm excited to hear about. I can't wait for. More data. There's a little trial that was presented in 2018 at the San Antonio Breast Conference. That's like the big breast conference where all the research findings are presented. And there was a it's a retrospective study, which is not the best study design, but it indicated that low dose tamoxifen. So normally tamoxifen is dosed at 20 milligrams a day. So it's what I call very redundant dosing. It's you know way more than we need to block all our estrogen receptors mm. where they are blocked by yeah. this drug. And so in this retrospective study, they found that a dose of 5 milligrams of tamoxifen may be as effective, enough so that they're proposing some prospective clinical trials. So we'll see, because that would be great. Yes. Lower the dose theoretically, improve tolerance, less harmful than mitochondria and all those good things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, What about uh, iodine? I remember an old, very old trial. Um, Forgive me, not a trial, a paper talking about iodine, and I do believe in this very old paper, it was Lugol's solution, which was used. But I remember something about it being used for uh, non-cyclical mastalgia. Yeah. So speaking of iodine, I actually, uh, there was just a paper that I was circulated to today um, that I just saw. This was a randomized pilot. So it was really kind of two studies in one, but they looked at two groups of women. One were women with early stage breast cancer who were managed surgically, and they gave them five milligrams of iodine um, and then surgery. And then they had a second small group of women, and I'm talking like, I don't know, there's like 15 and 17 or something in each group, small group, Hmm. uh, advanced of stage three breast cancer getting chemotherapy, and they also got five milligrams of iodine. And although this is a small trial and we still don't know really what this tells us in terms of overall survival, in the women, advanced stage breast cancer women who are getting chemo with the iodine, in this uh, five-year disease-free survival rate was significantly higher than in women who did not get the iodine. And um, there was an indication that that effect was also seen in the early breast cancer stage group. So it appears that five milligrams of iodine uh, you know, might actually be beneficial. And 
these researchers are going to go on to a phase three clinical trial in advanced breast cancer. So I'll be looking for that for sure. I just want to caveat this to say that five, there's other research prior to this that has looked at various iodine dosages. And generally speaking, five milligrams is within what we call the safety range. So you don't get thyroid storm effects. You don't have disrupted metabolism in a deleterious way. So it would generally be considered a safer dosing. So this is not justification for high-dose iodine therapy. I know some alternative practitioners recommend, you know, 100, 200 milligrams yeah, of iodine. Way too I high. think that that personally is very dangerous and not what this study is about. But encouraging. This is, I think, encouraging data here. So, well, that's really exciting. But can I ask, though, that was used five milligrams over what period? Orally. Orally? Um, Yeah, orally. And uh, this was a month for the early stage and for 170 days for the advanced stage. Gotcha. So, you know, over about six months or so. That's really interesting. Just a last question, Lise, and, and that's, I mentioned it before, the MRIs. So what is the risk of contrast MRIs? Yeah. So this is, you know, kind of a, I hear this, I don't know if, if you run across this, but I hear this from patients who are needing to get breast MRIs because they're tissue is dense and the mammogram isn't good enough. And so their kind of screening tool of choice is breast MRI. So they get concerned because the contrast agent used in MRI, uh, ganodilinium, is uh, deposited in the brain. And there's been a few reported cases of people who, you know, have cognitive issues they feel as a result of this deposition. And the reality is we don't really know, um, you know, how, what the impact of retaining gadolinium over a long period of time is. Uh, we know, for example, that the risk of Parkinson's disease increase about, increases about 4% per contrast MRI. So you, whatever your starting risk is, that's relative risk. So that's not a hugely impactful number, but it does obviously say there's some negative impact on the brain. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a concern, but I think that right now what most um, surgeons anyway are saying is that the risk is not great enough to not get the contrast MRI. Now, the alternative is a non-contrast MRI, and um, the the sensitivity for that is actually pretty high. That's about 97% sensitive for breast cancer detection. Uh, specificity is not great. It's about 83% uh, specific, so it wouldn't necessarily differentiate between a malignant versus a non-malignant lesion, but I would argue that it's probably better than nothing if somebody's really quite concerned or has right. a high, let's say, familial risk or individual risk of Parkinson's or something like that. I've got to say, Lise, I always learn something new and useful whenever I speak with you. And I I just, I thank you so much for just enlightening us on the new developments with conventional medicine updates in breast cancer. So thank you so much for taking us through those today. You're very welcome. I hope that was helpful. You know, I, I think this stuff is very important for us to know as integrated practitioners because we can often be that interface for patients and Mm. trying to help them translate, directing them to the right questions to ask. And so even though it's not exactly in our wheelhouse, I think it's important for us to be aware of what's happening out there. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.
If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends.